0: Welcome to Product Club, a podcast featuring the best product people in the world. I'm your host, Jeff Morris Jr. Most of you know me as JMJ and founder of Chapter One. Let's get started. We had an incredible day with Monique Gupta today at Product Club. Monique was most recently the Chief Product Officer at Uber. His org at Uber was 1,100 people and spanned across product management, data science, data analyst, design, and program management. He also spent seven plus years at Google, where he's a product leader on Google Maps, and he was absolutely incredible. For the, the listeners, Monique just joined us for Product Club Week Two. Uh, and the focus was on OKRs. And I must say the, the best part about these sessions is I think I learned as much about <laughs> about OKRs as the companies did, and and there were um, just so many incredible insights. And I think I guess starting from the top, one of the, the things I kept hearing from you was making sure that you include the voice of the customer. And so we went through a bunch of metrics and they were kind of hard, hard metrics in terms of data. And, and you kept on reminding teams to to actually measure the voice of the customer. And I'm curious how, how you've seen that done in the past and why you kept emphasizing that. Yeah, no,
1: it, it was a great session definitely with with the team. So, you know, p- p- part of the, my, my my instinct on this is when you are building a new product or when you're starting out, it's very easy sometimes to get caught up in uh, in just looking at hard numbers and metrics and and putting up dashboards and things like that uh, because you want to the, the the broad rhetoric right now these days is you should measure everything and whatever you can't measure doesn't get done which by the way I, I agree with but. Ultimately, your first set of users or your early users are going to stick with you and and be on your platform or be on your product because they, they love your product. And uh, if you can build a relationship with them and listen to them and talk to them and make them into your, your allies, you will just learn a lot more about what's working and what's not working. So my nudge is always about figuring out ways and channels. And these channels can be reaching out to customers directly if the number of customers is small enough. or looking at support tickets or looking at other mechanisms around surveys and so on so that you can really hear users talk about your product in, in, their own, in their own words. And this leads to two things in my mind. One is it gives you very early signals in terms of what's working and what's not working for these users, and then you should prioritize fixing that. And the second is it also gives you a lot of new ideas to focus on because when you're starting a new product, you you are coming with your own instincts, but ultimately users, the way they use the product will tell you where you can take the product as well. So combining those hard numbers with the voice of the customer, I, I'm a big believer in that.
0: I, I guess taking a step back at an org like Uber, how do you keep people aligned on goals? You were responsible for product management, data science, data analysts, design, program management. Um, and how, how do you keep that large of an org aligned? I've seen companies that have fifty employees struggle with this. So, I'm yeah. Curious. yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. No, it, it's, it's definitely one of the one of the more challenging parts of of growing a company. Uh, so at Uber, what we did is we we had a very well organized planning process where we used to do an annual plan at the end of the year. Myself, our CTO, uh, together with our product and engineering leadership team, will basically get together with the rest of the executive team and determine. What are the goals for the year? Uh, for from at a company level, I'm also a big believer that you should not start planning in isolation. You should really plan with regards to what the corporate goals are, because otherwise, you know, you'll be disconnected with uh, with the uh, the output. So, so we have a set of company goals, whether it's around geographic expansion, getting into more cities, or it is about improving a new product, or 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 improving an existing product, or launching a new product segment, and so on. And then you you basically kind of boil it down to what your team and your organization can do to contribute towards those goals. So we used to run a planning process where we will take all that information from from uh, the top level company goals, and then condense them down to what would make sense for product and engineering. And when I say product, it includes all the other functions as well. And ultimately what it resulted in was a two, two outputs. Output number one was a set of metrics that we wanted to hit for the year, and these metrics were expressed in terms of, um, in, in our case, were expressed in terms of um, how can we help on the top line of the company to grow revenue based on certain revenue products? How can we save costs through automation? Because a lot of technology is about uh, automating things and, and reducing the cost structure. And then there were metrics which were very focused on the, pro- on the core product itself around the user experience. So we had those metrics that everybody in the team knew about, that those are the big sort of giant goals that we are going after. And then we identified a set of about five to eight projects that were like the big bets that we were taking for the year. And those were a combination of doing things from a top-down perspective corresponding to the goals, but also bottoms up where people had lots of good ideas in terms of what we should do to meet those goals. So so ultimately, where we ended up with a a sort of uh, operating plan was set of metrics for the year which we tracked on a monthly basis, and a set of top projects for the next six to nine months. And once we had that, that became the priority for our group. And what that meant in terms of decision-making was we had to saturate the resourcing and the focus on these top priorities before we could do anything else uh, mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the company. So so that's how we, we ended up uh, with an operating plan. Uh, was it perfect? No, because you know at, at that size, not everything works perfectly. But I think it gave people a lot of credibility in terms of pushing, saying no to other teams, or or saying, hey, we want to focus on this because this is like a top level priority. And then in terms of the final point I'd make is in terms of alignment, is it's a lot of repetition. So you know people keep forgetting, right? People forget all the time. Which is, hey, what was our top priority? Why are we working on this? Uh, there are a lot of new people joining the company. There are people who are leaving, and they leave with institutional knowledge sometimes. So you just have to keep repeating, like every month, every week, every every opportunity you see where people are getting misaligned and so on. If you see a problem, you basically step in and say, "Wait a minute, hold on, folks, we need to talk about this. This is not the right priority. This is the priority." And it just gets into the DNA of the company at that point.
0: And and is that repetition all through voice and through meetings and kind of constantly beating that drum, or is there anything visual? It always surprises me that companies don't have like a homepage. I know Stripe has something similar where you just log on in the morning and, and you see exactly what those three goals are every single day so it just becomes a part of your just like your second brain it's just so so ingrained in what your your goals are
1: yeah so so uh, at, at uber we had a very very good internal set of dashboards which were public to everybody in the in the company so that was very helpful that anybody could go in and see all our metrics uh, i do agree that it's useful to have a place to go to where people can see all this information But again, you know, given Jeff, like how many things we do on a daily basis, who has sometimes even the time to go to a website and see it, right? So to me, at least my experience has been that it's much better to, in every all hands communication that you do, in every communication I used to send out uh, to my team, uh, every time our CEO or our executive team would would send some communication, whether whether it is spoken or written on email, we just kept reiterating the same thing again and again. And that was the most effective way to get people aligned.
0: One of my, my favorite things you said today was, people don't like to own metrics, they like to own goals. Uh, I just thought that was a, a beautiful quote, and, and I'd love to to kind of double click on that and, and hear more about what, what you mean there.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, this is what I realized over time. I think it, it kind of goes back to how you inspire people, right? Metrics are metrics are important and they are really the way people measure their progress because they're numbers and you know you can see if you if you met met your met your metric or not but i think it's useful to build a narrative around the metrics and contextualize that with a goal because then then people not only understand what they need to do they also get inspired why they need to do it and i have seen more success in asking people to own metrics combined with also giving them an ownership of a goal, which is a goal that they believe in and they can specify, they can get other people inspired, they themselves can be inspired. And a combination of those two uh, gives, I feel, people more agency and more latitude to say, you know what, I'm in charge of this and I'm just going to drive this. Uh, And I think uh, oftentimes people... So the, the worst case scenario is you don't give anybody any metrics, you don't give anybody any goals and just say, hey, just go own this project. I don't think that really works very well. So you have to give at least a project or a task combined with metrics. And on top of that, if you can give them a goal and tie it to a goal that that they can be inspired by, then it just, in my mind, it kind of unlocks the next level of ownership and and creativity, which comes out of people because they feel inspired.
0: So, So today we went through OKRs, and I was actually pretty nervous to introduce this because the companies are very young. I mean, it's a lot of the companies, most of them have two... Two team members, two co-founders, and is it too early to introduce Okrs to to startups? I know a lot of startups say, you know, we want we want a more free form process, but like, how early do you recommend introducing the concept of Okrs?
1: So, you know, Okrs is a very interesting tool. Um, It is also just one of the tools that's available out there these days. Uh, at the very bare minimum, um, even if you don't call them OKRs, I'm a big believer, even early on, for a small company to have a set of goals and and metrics that they want to hit underneath that. Uh, OKRs do give a nice way to express that, and it's it's uh, pretty common in the industry, so people just get it, like, why is it an OKR and so on. The, the challenge with OKRs or any such process can be that it can be extremely cumbersome uh, if not uh, done at the right level. So Let me give you an example. Now, if you are a small company and just starting out, and you introduce OKRs, and now you have company-level OKRs, and, and then you ask every team to come up with their team-level OKRs, and you ask every individual to come up with their individual-level OKRs, I mean, people will just be planning for 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 a long time, and it doesn't and no work gets done. Mm-hmm. So, I think OKRs are useful um, even in smaller companies, but they should. My view is they should be kept at a company level, and they should be discussed as company-level goals and company-level metrics that we want to hit uh, from a result standpoint. And just leave it at that, and not not go one or two layers below. Now, of course, as you become bigger, and you know the comp- and Google is, is Google has done this over the years many many times. As you become bigger and bigger, then you definitely want to have cascading OKRs from the company to the group to the person and, and the team. But I don't. I would not introduce any of that process uh, in a in a small even even a medium sized company.
0: One thing I kept hearing today from you was how helpful it is to have technical metrics and OKRs, so measuring latency and. Just making sure you have a highly performant product uh, and you, you kind of walked through the ETA Uber example and but just obsessing over the technical metrics. And I think this is easy to forget when you're when you're kind of creating company goals. But what what's kind of ingrained that in your mind and, and why were you uh, why did you push that so much today? Yeah, um, I, I
1: pushed on that today, Jeff, because I think sometimes those things, not sometimes, oftentimes these things get ignored. And by the time somebody, one of the engineers or one of the you know, junior level PMs or, or somebody who's closer to the problem, they look at it, it's too late. So to give you an example, if, you don't, if your product is all about getting people to do things in a fast manner and be efficient and so on, and, and if you don't track things like latency of how long does it take for someone to open the app or how long does it take them to you know, select some information and then push it and so on and so forth, then what is happening is you are not tracking them at a, at a senior leadership level and you're looking at numbers of users coming in and so on and you're looking at them and saying, wow, you know things are going really well. More and more users are coming in the pipeline. All that stuff is happening. But unfortunately, you're also losing a lot of users because they hate your product. And I think this kind of goes back to the voice of customer conversation we were also having, which is which is if you don't have ways to instrument the way people are actually using your product and a lot of them are technical metrics, then you will just not be effective in terms of retaining your users. So so the earlier you can pull in those experiential technical metrics into your into your um, framework, into your decision-making framework, and also your dashboards at, a, at an executive level, I think you will just be better off. So, so I push teams uh, to really think about the top two or three technical metrics that matter to your product and then surface them early enough uh, so that everyone understands that those things matter a lot
0: and they focus on it. One other part you mentioned was a big mistake that you see is is companies waiting for scale to start instrumenting their funnel. And and what was that observation kind of about?
1: Yeah, so, um, y- you know, whenever, whenever people are um, coming up with uh, new products and they're thinking about how to onboard a set of users um, for any particular task, it, it is when you're growing really fast and either you're spending money or maybe people have discovered your product, it's very nice to see the first... 100 users, 1000 users, 10,000 users. And you are just like, oh man, I'm killing it. Like, this is so good. We are seeing so many users come in and whatnot. But if you don't have an early enough thinking around what is your funnel from the top of funnel where they first hear about your product to the time they download it, to the time they install it, to the time they, to the time they really uh, open it up and kind of sign up and so on. And if you don't instrument that appropriately enough uh, and, and early enough, you will just not see where the drop offs are. And uh, if you have a lot of drop-offs happening, it's incredible, like if you just fix those drop-offs, uh, you will just see a much higher conversion and you'll be able to reduce the amount of money or the, or the amount of work that you have to do to get new users onboarded. So, it, you know, the canonical example is, imagine you go to a retail store, right? And you heard about the retail store somewhere and you walked into that retail store and uh, you, uh, you basically kind of selected a product, everything is great and then you took out your credit card and the, and the merchant says, oh, my credit card machine is not working and you don't have cash, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's like, you know, the user did so much work to come to you and you didn't have the right, right thing at the end to convert that into a sale. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, this happens in e-commerce sites all the time where you have shopping cart abandonment. My point is that you have to really see where the drop-offs are and then instrument them appropriately so that you can focus on it so that your customers always have a seamless experience. Because if you do that, and you still are not getting users, then you have other structural problems to fix, which is like maybe our top-off funnel is not working and so on. But you know there ends up these debates within these companies where suddenly the numbers stop growing, and everybody's looking at each other and saying, I don't think maybe the marketing team is not like pushing hard enough, or maybe this other team is not doing this. you like, put the data up there. Where is the drop-off? Oh, the drop-off is because we have this new login system, and this login system is basically turning off most people because everyone's forgotten their password. All right, let's go fix it. And once you fix it, then suddenly you have a funnel that's working. So I think that's an important uh, skill set to build for um, entrepreneurs up 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 and early is is, is my uh, inclination
0: I love you were talking to spline today and spline is a 3d design tool for the web and there was this concept you were talking about moving users up the complexity curve which I thought was a, a beautiful concept and it's something I think a lot of a lot of kind of prosumer products are are, are, are pretty complex and they have different levels that you can reach as a user but What's the complexity curve and in, in, um, in the case of Spline? Like, what, what did you mean by trying to move them up the complexity curve?
1: Yeah, so I was really impressed with Spline. Um, they are building this uh, really interesting tool where designers can create uh, 3D models uh, on the web, and I think they've done a fantastic job creating, creating that tool. Um, my my uh, push to them was, ultimately, you want to... If you're building a tool that allows users to do um, more and more interesting things and uh, and show their creativity, you want to track how creative users are being on your platform. And in Spline's case, my understanding of creativity was what kind of complexity are they able to build from a model standpoint, right? So you, you can pretty much apply the same argument to any creative tool or prosumer tool, as you as you mentioned. Um, you can take a look at maybe YouTube or any of these other um, tools as well, where where the complexity and the richness of the content that gets created, uh, you have to measure that because if people are able to do more and more with your tool, that means your product is actually working. If all people do is to do very basic things, that's not a bad thing. You know, that's still good. It's democratized. Everyone can kind of do it. But you really want to empower the true creators to give them the best tool possible to do things that you yourself as a product owner didn't realize was possible with your own tool. So having a focus on that and giving people the nudges and the attributes and all the information so that they know that, hey, I created a model, which if I just did two or three other features in the product, which by the way, are already there, but maybe they were not discoverable, I can just make this model 2x more complex. And by complex, I mean, it's actually better for for whatever they're trying to achieve. Then you end up in a very interesting situation where you just have much more stickiness and the overall output of your product is better. So my push to them was, Think about how users can create more complex models. Complex means being more creative, and then sort of get, guide them on this journey with all the powerful uh, tool set that you have, so that users can feel even better about what they created.
0: And, and how do you how do you measure complexity? Because I think it's a really powerful idea. And I talked to Rome Research, I don't know if you know them, but I talked to them a lot about this. Where or, or Microsoft Excel is a great example um, of complexity. And the like, how do you how do you measure that as a product team?
1: Yeah, maybe, maybe compl- I, I guess it has to apply to each product. Uh, complexity can also be seen as richness of the model, if you will. So so let's take Excel as an example. Um, there are people who use, I mean, the superpower users of Excel, use Excel to uh, do things that nobody ever thought was possible, right? And I, I'm sure you have seen, this, like I've seen, like lots of creative, like people make movies in Excel and they do all this animation <laughs> and all that. And it blows my mind. Right, like that is just so out there. And why do people do it? Because they use a tool in, to express their creativity and and do things which nobody thought was possible. So, so to me, pushing the boundaries of how your tool can be used, and also exposing the right functionality to the right set of users, especially if the functionality is already there, um, and allowing them to create, you know, richer, more complex, more creative kind of output. It just means that your tool is going to um, it's going to inspire other people who basically can see that and say, wait a minute, I didn't know this tool could do that. I'm also going to give it a shot. So it just sort of moves the whole market in that direction and, and uh, gets there. Now, the, the challenge with this can also be that, that your tool has to make it easy enough for someone to express their creativity in that manner. Now, if it is if it is super hard for people to create a complex uh, or or create a more creative model or a complex model, then I don't think then people will just give up. So oftentimes I see tools have a lot of functionality. That functionality gets used twenty percent of the time. The remaining eighty percent of power features never get used because they're not discoverable and so on. And if you can just create an experience where you can nudge people to just keep doing that, then you then everyone's using your product to the fullest extent and they're creating output which. Just lifts the entire set sort of people who are using your product.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I guess one one last question would be, and this is a little bit of a, a step back from Spline and everything else in Product Club is you worked at Google for seven years, four plus years at at Uber. I'm curious; those are two of the most prolific, complex product teams probably in the world. But what 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 were the major similarities and, and maybe differences between how products got shipped and how they operated at both? Both companies, yeah.
1: So, so there were there were quite a few differences. Um, so, Google first and foremost was was purely an online company, right? So, um, and and most of the Google products are free. So, so it's a very different set of product thinking there, um, and it's also very much driven through and um, driven through a technical lens. So I, I worked on Google Maps, which which sort of was a little bit more digital and physical world intersection, right? Because you, you're you mapping the real world, right? Um, and over there, it was all about driving the number of users, the number of searches, uh, like really going all over the world and building the best map possible. And we had like a long-term vision around that, right? But a lot of our projects were very focused on on solving the core use case of so people want to go from point A to point B, and how do we get them there? Uh, on the other hand, on Uber, Uber was a classic example of firstly, it's a paid product, and it also is um, is a hyper local product because uh, San Francisco is different from New York, is different from Paris, and you had this really important collaboration between the operations teams, which are superstars at Uber. I mean, these are the people who really get stuff done at a, at an operational level. So, working closely with the operations team and the engineering team, and you know, the product role was much more of a uh, of a cross functional and also really trying to figure out the right dynamics of how to build a paid product. So different different set of uh, operating models o- o- over there at um, Uber. I would argue that Uber was the product product function at Uber was much more in the sort of general management kind of lens. and the product function at Google at least from from my vantage point was uh, was much more around the work with design and uh, and engineering lens. So those were the kind of the two main differences because of the, the difference in the company itself with regards to free versus paid uh, and also uh, purely digital or mostly digital versus an actual physic, a product that causes change in the physical
0: world. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I learned an incredible amount and uh, the Product Club folks appreciate you and can't wait to see what you do next in your career. And hopefully we can get you to come back next year.
1: Thank you so much, Jeff, for giving me the opportunity. I really love meeting the
0: teams today and uh, thanks for the interview. Thank you.